The Art Dealer Diaries are brought to you by Medicine Man Gallery, located for over 26 years in Tucson, Arizona, specializing in antique Native American art, early Western art, including the famed Maynard Dixon, as well as modern art. You can find everything online at medicinemangallery.com. There's over 6,000 objects to select from. Also, the Charles Bloom Murder Mystery Series, written by yours truly, me, Mark Sublett. There's six books in this series, and they follow the protagonist Charles Bloom through all the intrigue of the art world set in Santa Fe and the Navajo Nation. These can be found on Audible, eBooks, Amazon, and of course, the gallery at medicinemangallery.com. Robert Summers came by today, and this guy is a real unique human being. He writes a wonderful blog, which I encourage you to follow, but we go from his beginnings in White Sands and how a single sand painting he saw as a kid in Gallup really galvanized and changed the way he saw things. From being a writer to photographer, from being a multi-millionaire real estate developer to poverty, and how art pulled him from that poverty and made him really who he is today. This is a, a life story that I think you'll find not only interesting, but quite compelling. Robert Summers. All right, kids. This is a story about a man named Robert, and a very interesting story. In fact, I think you may be the most interesting guest I'll have on my podcast. I know, you're thinking about that. that Why that's that? a really tough thing to live <laughs> up or down to. But so now ahead. all you have to do is perform, Robert. Oh, great. I have Robert Summers here today on the Art Dealer Diaries, and Robert's a, whether he'll admit it or not, a very successful art dealer, but he has this odd circuitous road to the art world which he filled me in on a little bit i've known robert for 20 years and um, follow his blog by the way i highly encourage people to follow the blog what's the name of the blog exactly robert blue heron blast do not read the blog yeah blue heron blast yeah now do read the blog um it is a little left winged no it's extremely left but that's okay because i love to read just to see what everything is going on in robert's life and he's a Incredible photographer as well. Um, and let's just find out about Robert. Welcome, Robert. Thank you, Mark. Tell me, where the hell did you grow up? Well, I was a missile brat, for uh, want of a better term. I went from Edwards to White Sands. My, my stepfather was a uh, drone missile designer. And uh, so we, although I was born in San Diego, we quickly moved uh, all over the country sort of test firing missiles. And this was your this was your second this was your stepdad yes my stepfather and so you were but you were your dad was from your your biological father was from Israel correct and you guys grew up originally where in New San York? Diego in San Diego my father came to this country uh, at the age of fifteen from Palestine Israel not yet being uh, a country in 1939 and uh, was a brilliant mathematician in mind and. Uh, worked his way through UCLA and uh, became a very successful real estate developer. Oh, that's interesting. In Southern California. Yes. Uh-huh. So you grew up in New Mexico, basically. New kind Mexico, of. Texas, New York, and California. Because he was moving around because he was with the mil- your Your stepdad was with the military. So, but that's kind of where you got your first uh, interest in Native American art, wasn't it? Yes. My stepfather uh, and his uh, first wife collected uh, fetishes. And uh, I remember, I think our first trip to Gallup was 63. What's a, I want to just stop you there. Do you remember what Gallup was like in the 60s? Gallup was amazing. Yeah. Uh, Gallup was uh, transforming and actually one of the most powerful experiences I ever had as a seven-year-old kid was in Gallup. And? I want to hear that. Um, First of all, let me just set it by Gallup was dirt streets with the prototypical people laying in the streets. I, I watched not hundreds, maybe thousands of people hopping the longest freight trains you've ever seen coming yeah. through town. And did you ever see that as a kid? So, no, I never saw that. But I do remember being in Gallup on many occasions, you know, during my life because I grew up in New Mexico. And I was always... Honestly, I was a little bit afraid of that city when I was a kid because there was just so much uh, despair, it seemed like. It, it was scary. And there were, in the early 60s, there were New Mexican towns that were scary. Farmington also was scary. But 
I the getting back to this incredibly powerful and spiritual, if you will, moment. I we watched a sand painting demonstration with a blind Navajo sand painter making perfect lines, and I watched that, and it really stretched my brain. It was the watching this man somehow create a sand painting. Uh, who had no business creating a sand painting, and I still don't understand it to this day. Was that like at the Gallup International Art Fair that you were at? So you were about seven at that time? Yes. Yeah, isn't that amazing? How something like, you know, I found this thread throughout these interviews, is that there's some pivotal moment often as a child that flips a switch. And do you think that might have been that? I do think so. Isn't that interesting? I've, I've referred to it for years as one of these moments in my life where the universe exploded and so at that point you're just a young kid How, where do you go from seven because you're moving all around after that too what was that like because you guys had some tough times at points right right uh my my father sort of uh did not fulfill his familial obligations to the family my mother was a classic liberal civil rights person who never found anyone she wouldn't take in. We had 11 people in the house in El Paso at one time and (laughs) never had any money, never had enough food. We're raising great Danes to boot. And uh, so we were always one step ahead of the creditors, the Spiegel's mail order catalog company. It was, it was a really rough life. Uh, And my, my stepfather uh, he had a 212 IQ, but he drank like a fish and liked to get his exercise beating on his kids. Yeah, so, and you were one of those kids that got beat on. We were what we called collateral damage. Yeah, and how long did that go on? Uh, when I think I was 15, when he went to hit my mom and I stopped him and had a fight and he never came back. He never came back. Right. And then, so what happened to your family after that? Now you've lost the breadwinner, or a breadwinner, I would say. Uh, my mom uh, was in New York, and uh, she was a very successful editor at Pinnacle Books. And, uh, but she had a nervous breakdown and uh, decided to follow him back to California and win his affections again. Oh she was in a very dark uh, uh, dyad with this man and uh, so I followed her back to California in, in 1974. And so how old were you approximately at that time? Uh, I was uh, maybe 16. Yeah, so you were 16. And so... 16 or 17. And how long did you stay in California with that? Um, I... Uh, two years at that point. But you spent quite a bit of time in New York City, too. Yes. Which, and yeah. that was kind of in your early teens, 12 to 15-ish. Right. And right. what was that experience like? That, that, must that have was been, fabulous. It was transformative in some you, ways, yeah, too, right? Yeah, I, uh, I was going to, uh, I was a scholarship kid at a prep school in, in the city. And uh, it was wonderful because I was really, had wonderful friends. New York was so amazing at that time for music, for uh, intellectual, curious kid. And uh, it was just absolutely fabulous. Had the had the most beautiful girl in high school as a girlfriend, and just really skated on top of the whole ball. And you, I know you won't talk about it, but I'm going to bring it up. You have an eidetic memory. You're very high in intellect. Uh, I don't know that I'm high in intellect, but I have an eidetic <laughs> memory, and I'm an information processor. And so, how does that help you having that memory? Which I think I kind of have a similar kind of memory, at least. Uh, in the world of, of art? It's very helpful. Uh, you know, it's, it's a key component, having a memory like we have. Uh, I, I would say, but in life, it has its ups and downs, having an eidetic memory. Yeah, no. People ask, how, how is that possible? And I'll say, well, imagine uh, meeting someone who you've had a wonderful relationship with 30 years later, and they don't remember you anymore. <laughs> I always get the people when I go, oh, I remember that piece. And they look at me with a quizzical, unbelieving eye that, yeah, there's no way you know that piece. I'm sure. It went through my hands 20 years ago. And for whatever reason, the piece, the object had enough, you know, power. And they do, these things do have power, in my opinion, that I could just remember it. I, you know, I don't know why. It's just blocked in my brain. Somewhere. Sure. No, it's definitely a help. And so you go to, back to California, 
And then at some point you go to school? Yes, I went to school um, as an art architecture major. And, uh, and you're painting, by the way, right? As a yes, kid, I'm, you're really I'm painting interested. My whole life, yeah. yeah, you're really interested in art and your painting. Yes. And what kind of artwork were you doing as a kid? Uh, mostly representational. I was actually doing photography from the age of seven, and also just a, a lot of painting and drawing. And did you think that might be your route that you were going to be an artist? I mean, obviously in college you went in art with an art degree or tried to. Uh, I had wanted to be an architect, but uh, at some point in time I went back to work for my dad running subdivisions. I got a construction project management credential. That was after college. Yes, at San Diego State, and uh, but I found that all the architects that were working for me at the time I was making a lot more money then, and said, "Why am I putting my energy into this?" And had you started collecting art yet at this time? Yes, I actually started collecting art in 1975. I collected... uh, How old were you at that point, approximately? uh, 1975, I was 18. Yeah. And I was collecting psychedelic and surf art, California art, the underground comic art, the zap comic sort of thing. Right. And you got to know, in fact, one of those artists. Many of those artists. Yeah. Yes, Rick Griffin and I developed a very close association for quite a few. And was years. that through surfing? Because I know he was involved in surfing as uh, well. Or? It was uh, through art primarily. His uh-huh. agent was a good friend of mine. His late agent, Jose Kent. Yeah, tell us about him because he was an interesting guy. He did uh, Who uh, covers and other things, Zap magazines. And Rick was a really interesting guy. Very conflicted. Uh, a uh, heavy-duty evangelical Christian who had no problem ingesting all sorts of potions at the same time. and uh, That kind of came on later in his life, right? And about 1970, he became a born-again Christian. He, 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 he was born again and died again on various times. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, it was, he was a very powerful, incredible artist, one of my heroes, and I was lucky enough to paint with him for quite a few years and, wow. and hang out in the studio for some of his really great creations. And what were you doing? Was that up in San Francisco? No, was that, that was actually, in... he was living in Costa Mesa at the time. Oh, yeah. And so when you would paint with him, you're painting your thing. Were you, were you kind of riffing off him going, okay, because he did the psychedelic I, very fine, intricate stuff, right? I was just drawing when he'd be in the studio, and so he would be days and days. We were up. I mean, I can't tell you what it was like, Rick working on a painting, and I would just fill the time and paint alongside And you're young, him. right? You're, yeah, I'm young. And did you recognize you were with a genius at that time? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's good. And a lot of people don't realize It's tough that. to meet your heroes because they can never really live up to your yeah. expectations. And you knew his paintings before you knew him? Yes. And did you go and seek him out when you... Basically, I met him at a, uh, a show of his paintings at, I think, Chapman University. Uh-huh. And so did you ever end up owning any of his work? Yeah, I actually had the greatest collection in the world at one time of his album covers. And what happened to that collection? Uh... I got broke and had to sell them. And that hat goes back to the real estate. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Let's touch on that. So you, so you get your degree and your degree was in construction project management. Yeah. So, and you start building these big projects in Southern California with right. your father, which right. are very successful, right? Right. Right. And, um, then what happened with that? Well, my, my last project on my own was 73 houses and I sold them out in two weeks. It was like a $7 million deal. We made tons of money, but, uh, I, my bank was taken over in the middle of a big project, Home Fed. This is the Reagan SNL years. And a man uh, befriended my father and stole $13 million from the company and sort uh-huh. of wiped out our uh, operating income. And I, I, I was maybe 35 at the time, and I went from the penthouse to the outhouse and fat, faster than you can imagine. So you're a millionaire. You're flying high. You probably got an amazing amount of stress with that many projects and then all of a sudden you're basically destitute yeah plus uh there's a divorce and a cancer i got cancer in 1985 bladder and kidney cancer and that came and that came primarily because you were painting right you were doing house sign painting i was i had a sign painting business and uh, prior to going back to work for my dad and i was painting my own paintings when leslie and i got into this business we were selling my paintings originally oh wow 
uh, and then I ran out of stock. But I really, really missed painting. I love painting and used to hang out in the studio. I'd get there at four in the afternoon and paint all night. And what were you painting? What kind of things were you painting? Um, heavy impasto. Uh, so I, I was sort of a... I loved N.C. Wyeth and Winslow Homer and crap. I love heavy brushwork and sort of 1930s uh, regionalist type paintings. And have you ever seen any of those paintings come back on the market? No, I wish. Yeah, because you'd buy it, right? Yes, Were you signing it under your yes, name? Yes, I was, actually. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I know where if I find one, I've got a buyer. Please do. <laughs> then you'll bring it. I'll bring it to you and you go, no, that's too much for that. He's an unknown. <laughs> Yeah, that was July. I only want the stuff I did in June. Sorry. <laughs> so you do these. So you're a painter. Uh, you go through the building process. You get cancer. And the cancer is diagnosed after you've lost your, basically, your real estate business? No, the cancer was prior. And basically, 1985, I was building a 210-unit apartment project, a large subdivision and custom houses all at the same time. We're under the gun. We owe people money. And every night I'm from 12 to 3, I'm just thinking, who didn't I call? I'm freaking out from stress. And it just shot my immune system to hell. Yeah. And I think that... It will do that. That's right. Stress, stress that. just about killed me. And so how did you reboot? I mean, how did you restart that after that? And what, what time frame was that? I mean, you're really... That's a hard thing. You have to make some major decisions in your life. Well, I have to reinvent myself. And I'm, uh, and I thought it was all going to be easy street. Mm-hmm. Uh, a friend said, you know, why don't you go to the Rose Bowl and sell some stuff? Here's a four by four card table. It's just maybe 1993. Yeah. Uh, okay. And, uh, I went up there now. I wasn't, people say that when I was rich, I was sort of an arrogant prick. <laughs> They didn't like me so much. I've heard that from more than a few people. I well, wasn't a good boss. You also were young. I was young. Yeah, that's that sometimes comes with young. Youth, yeah, and young and thinking that it was maybe easy and not understanding the yeah. totality and that everybody was a human being deserving of respect. And in any, in any case... I had all, when I was in real estate, I had salesmen working for me, but I never, I derided salesmen. I didn't respect salesmen. And all of a sudden I'm selling and I went, wow. And you're kind of selling at the lower rung. With a, at the lowest rung. Yeah, with a I'm table on the pavement. and rose at yeah. the Rose Bowl. And for people who don't know what the Rose Bowl is, so this is this big, huge, it still goes on, swap meet kind of thing that goes on once a month in, uh, in the, at the Rose Bowl in, in L.A. And thousands and thousands of people show up and lots of vendors. And back in this day, it was really a free-for-all. There was actually great material and uh, it was kind of a vibrant place, but... If you're at the bottom of the rung, that's a different world than being at the top of the rung. So you're now got your card table out there, and what the, what are you trying to sell? I'm selling Hull and Red Wing and anything I can, but I I I, I caught the game really well because I have an eye, yeah, and that eye has you helped do, me forever. Way. Yeah, so I I could recognize value, and uh, in a variety of areas, in a, not in not many just areas. Paintings. And uh, all of a sudden, in about two years, people said, what are you here for? Your, your stuff is way too good for this venue. Right around that time, 93, I went to work for a financial research company. And we went around the country requesting stale dated warrants under the Freedom of Information Act. States, cities, municipalities that owed people money. We would find the money and we would contact people for a fee. This job for two years took me all over the United States, the lower 48, every state, every city, every county, every back road. I could get my office job done in two hours. And what would I do for the rest of the day? I would pick. Yeah. And this is before eBay and it's before Ask Art. And I see before the Internet, before the Internet. And I would be in Duluth or some little barn in Pennsylvania or Florida or Washington and find these great, great things. Omaha, loved Omaha. And it really, really was the greatest education for a picker one could ever hope for. So would you 
tried to just blast through your two hours that you had to do at work and then the rest of the time you're excited because you're running around whatever town that was going from antique mall to antique mall and chasing down leads asking people oh do you know where there's any old paintings and kind of just following them up exactly and so when you would get this material and you're in iowa and you're but you're stationed in still san diego at this point right would you buy them and then just somehow figure out how to get them shipped or have them ship it yeah, and usually it was. I don't remember it presenting too much of a problem. Yeah, but when you got back to San Diego, there was a pile of stuff that you had managed to get. And what you were you still doing the Rose Bowl at that time? Yes, but I was also doing uh, shows like Tony Brewston's Modern Time Show and some of the indoor shows. I realized I told my wife after about two years that I do not want to die in a parking lot. Like this is your second people. wife, the one you're with now, correct, yeah. Leslie? Leslie, yeah. and she's Leslie, great, by the way. Leslie's Hi, Leslie. amazing, and when I had. She was there at, during the collapse, and she said she would stick with me if she had to live in a tent. And she's been just the most incredible woman in the world now for 28 Isn't years. Isn't that amazing? I think individuals like that make you succeed in a way that you never would have. And it seems like that's oh, the case with absolutely. you. Absolutely. Sure. She had complete faith in me and does to this day. And I think it's maybe a little misplaced today. <laughs> of course it is. <laughs> it is with all of us. So you're, this job that you're doing, that you're running around the country getting funds from, so that lasts for two years. And at some point you go, oh my God, I really don't need this job. Correct. Even though it probably paid pretty well, right? Yeah, it did. But you were having fun, and you re- and you did. It was at that point you recognized, okay, this is a job. This is something I can do. It's funny. I went into that job going, man, this is these people are gonna love me. These employees, I'm gonna be management, but I'm gonna be the best manager they've ever saw. And it turned out it didn't make any mi- difference really. They couldn't stand me anyway. <laughs> so I. <laughs> You're the boss. I'm not, I wasn't. Yes, I was the boss. I was on management, and no good deeds goes unpunished. And I'd, I'd had enough. Yeah. So I, en- I ended up uh, going into antiques full time and uh, opening up the Blue Herring Gallery in Fallbrook. And that's still there, right? Yeah, still my gallery is <clears throat> the doors have been open now for since 19, uh, 1997. Yeah, so a very long time. Over right. Yeah. Over and we uh, were successful enough you know we went through some real incredible years i mean huge years uh incredibly successful years we ended up buying our building and uh really really i feel very blessed about the fortune i had in the business and you also have a cool house that you've been for a long time right? sure. with fruit trees I have and a all ranch that. on a yeah. river and idyllic sort of setting and so when you opened that gallery that was in 1997 um, at that point, do you go, okay, this is where I'm headed. This is going to be the, this is what I'm doing for the rest of the island. Yes. And were you, what kind of things were you carrying at that point in time in 97? What was your real interest? Cause you kind of, I mean, you have a wide, if you ever go to one of Robert's booths, you're going to find a lot of different things. In 1997, uh, one thing I was heavily invested in was Mexican silver. Mm. See, I didn't know that. Uh, ceramics, high-end ceramics, paintings. Uh, I am kind of a strange man in the sense that I've always been a writer. I used to write for several magazines. I wrote for Silver Magazine. And I've always been interested in history. My father collected English court paintings. We had Gainsborough in the house. We had Peter Lely's great, great paintings. My mother back, who's in Pennsylvania at this point, is a swap meet antique dealer hitting, hitting the ground, selling, you know, very, very low-end merchandise. But I've had a really good idea did from she, a very young age. Did she do that because you did it? Or no, she, she was did, prior to me. Yeah. So there was an influence. Too, yeah, there was heavily yeah. influences from both sides. I knew what was good. Yeah. My father had the best of the best in uh, his genre, which is sort of patrician, bella poke, and what we call the Persian style today. Yeah. Gilded lilies, right? So I... Uh, my philosophy from a very young age was good design is good design and it's going to work with each other. I had no problem putting a beautiful Navajo rug next to a great painting, next to a great piece of modern. If it's good, it's going to shine through. And to this day, I feel that it's important to 
to mix cultures and time periods. Mm-hmm. And that could lead to a whole nother discussion. So I won't get off no, on we that segue. Yeah, we have lots of time. You know, because we're, we're heading to a very homogeneous monoculture today. And uh, we've discarded, uh, I think uh, there was a time when the uh, younger generation was, uh, I would say to this day, it's, it's mad man, it's 1950s forward. And they're, they're getting much more hesitant to pull back in history or study history for that matter and look at the beautiful uh, decorative arts that have brought us to where we are today. Yeah, so in 97, what was what was in when you started your gallery? Mission uh, furniture? Mission, Spanish revival were the things I gravitated to. I think I uh, wrote about this to you earlier. I, I have a, a little rule I developed early on, and Robert's axiom is that we reject the art of our parents and we embrace the art of our grandparents. Now, when I started the business, these phenomenal estates from the 20s and 30s were coming online. And the WPA area and the Mission period and the Spanish Revival and the Western, Southwestern, these are very warm, decorative decades. The, it's feel-good art. We are paying artists to paint. We've never had an explosion of art in this country like happened in the 30s in the WPA. But it cooled off after then. And... If you look and contrast that today, what was, what was being generated in the 70s and 80s that was worthwhile? We, I said it, I, I disparagingly call it the Melmac generation. And uh, if, yes, there were some great modern art being painted, but it, it wasn't nearly as widespread as the, what was happening in the 20s and 30s. Yeah, there was a lot, and they needed to survive, so you painted and painted and did everything else you could do. Yes. And uh, luckily, the government did the PWPA in 33 and then 34, and then the WPA after that for a period of time that you know gave us a lot of the great art. It really we did. We still, I think we still uh, look back at that, uh, artists look back at that and reinvent it in their own way. I see and that I, all And the I time. think that co- uh, decades of cultural upheaval actually bring out the uh, greatest artwork. I look at the 30s and 60s, that's probably the most tumultuous decades, as producing some of the most powerful art. Yeah. And now it's funny, I do modernism now shows, and uh, I call it a modern dealer because I there's things in the 40s and 50s I like, like Nakashima and Maloof, who was a very good friend of mine. Yeah, I want to hear about that, yeah, by the way. I, I, I love certain pieces of the 40s and 50s, and I, I got a Paul Laszlo dresser recently who was a, uh, a Eastern European designer who was big in the 40s and 50s for, for a lot of the Hollywood stars, and I... I called the guy in Palm Springs and asked him if he wanted a wholesale deal on it. And he said, we're only doing 70s and 80s now. And I went, oh, my <laughs> God, I am, I am so done. I am so over. So how did you get to know Sam Maloof? He's a very famous furniture maker and one of my favorites. Sam uh, loved weavings, loved baskets, and he used to shop in my store. And he, in fact, he brought his wife... Beverly, I think on their first date, came to my store. He bought her a, a bracelet, a Navajo bracelet. Be able to trade for one of his rockers or anything like that? No, he always promised me a music stand. And Sam was just, Sam was the greatest man and uh, treated me like a son, as did Alan Adler, and I, uh, the silversmith of L.A. And I think that the greatest satisfaction I've had in this business is making friends with some of these old craftsmen. It's been really important to me. I was Alan Adler's biographer, probably the greatest postmodern silversmith in Los Angeles. And I, I think of him like Sam because they was just went so far beyond work. They really, really treated us like family. Yeah, no, those are amazing artists. And Nakashimi, I agree as well. In fact, we're going to be doing a show. This won't air when it's on, but... Uh, with uh, Nakashimi Furniture Mirror and George Nakashimi against Maynard Dixon paintings. Which, oh, fabulous. Yeah, that's over at the object, so she'll find that very yeah, interesting. And she's, she's a wonderful woman. Uh, she's a she's gifted, fabulous gifted, yeah. uh, artist. Mm-hmm. So things have changed from 
in the modernist world where you were doing 40s and 50s things and now they're saying bring you 60s and 70s? 70s and 80s. 70s and 80s. And, and I'm thinking even, white no. shag and horrible lamps <laughs> and cork ceilings. And, and do you, so do you go with the market forces and look for those objects? I, I, I go or off. Or just in go the, in your basement and pick I, them out? I go off into the wilds and shoot birds. And when he says that, he means with a camera, not with a gun. Right. And we'll just, let's I, I, just, I cannot sell anything I, I despise, and it's, it's really horrible, but I just can't go there. And there's nothing of that generation that you there's find. There's few in, and far between. Yeah. So I, I try hard as I can, Mark. Yeah, no, no. That's, there's some great art, I think, that was produced in that time frame. People like, uh, you know, Howard Post was getting going, Ed Mel was getting going. There's a lot of... Uh, really wonderful artists that began in that time. Well, and there's, you know, Ed Mel, I've sold Ed Mel stuff. I wish I'd sold that Howard Post. I love Howard Post's work. I've sold Matt Smith. Yeah. There's great contemporary people. Now, uh, Ed Mel was doing his own thing, but you look at uh, Buck Weaver and uh, there were certain people in the 30s doing a Ray very Strong, s- yeah. similar kind of thing. But... Uh, yeah, strong as well. But I, in eighties is tough for me. Yeah, it's tough, and uh, you know, I've I'm I'm still. I think my wheelhouse is thirties. Benton Wood, things like yeah. that. Kloss, Bauman. I I love that space, and I'm trying Excellent. awful hard to <laughs> move forward. And so you have a gallery so you have people coming in all the time do you see millennials do you see younger people coming in and if my, so what are they interested in about three years ago my gallery became appointment only I see. and uh, one of the problems we have is uh, is a lack of young people in the business I do I'm still have to supplement my income to keep everything going with doing a lot of shows and in California Typically, we've had three San Francisco shows, three Santa Barbara shows, three Del Mar shows every year. Well, now those are all two and two a year rather than three a year. And there's half the dealers we used to have. And Is that because of attrition? They've gotten older and gone away or they just can't make a living or both? both. Yeah. And it's remarkable to find someone under 30 coming through the show my buying base is in their 70s and 80s and guess what they are not buying any longer and their kids have no interest in their material so and for a while we thought okay i'm an art dealer we're gonna it's abstraction is gonna save us and there has been some movement but really they're not interested in much at all and i've said our business can solve every problem but lack of interest I do think they're out there. I mean, I look at my own children who collect art and like art. Um, I think part of it is exposure. I also think I found this in, for the collectors that I have seen really develop and do the best were the ones that had a family, built a business, and then retired and looked to uh, fill that void or actually had the first chance of their life to actually look at art. And some of those individuals have just, you know, explode. Now, you and I might not be along, alive and long enough to see those, that pattern continue. But, you know, my guess is that it will flip at some point as they start to buy more houses. Even though I know there is an interest in um, you know, video, like things we're doing here, art and different types of art. But I hope it'll change. I do see it in Indian art, by the your, way. Your interview with... Uh your podcast with Terry Shermeyer, she touched on something I think was was uh, relevant and true, and it's that there is a gig economy, right. and the uh, kids are way into their down payments if they have bought a house, and many of them are job to job. They're not thinking we uh, that people that collect art and feather their nest, they feel really secure in their nest. And maybe they don't feel that secure. I, I had a funny story, which I recounted that I had a dinner at a very, very posh restaurant with five kids under 20 who each sold their computer company for a minimum of $30 million. And I quizzed them and I said, how many of you have art on your walls? Not one of them had a painting in their home. And these guys have huge homes. And did they express why they didn't? Well, one of them said, we're more into performance art and electronic art. 
one guy was dating a hand doctor. He said, oh, I do have a sculpture. I bought a, bought a, a sculpture of a hand in England. It was Rodin. I said, do you mean Rodin? <laughs> I said, yeah, that guy. And I said, how much did you pay for it? He said, three grand. I said, it's not an original. Yeah. But the, and did he care? He didn't care. And, but I'll often go into homes now, really beautiful homes, and just be amazed at the lack of decoration. Well, I think, again, I would be very interesting if you had been in that with that group of kids and said, hey, let's go over to my gallery and I want to show you some things and expose them. And sometimes maybe that exposure will be the kind of thing, just like that sand painting flipped your switch, maybe it'll flip theirs too. And I think part of it is... Our dealers, our generation, are not good at getting out the information. We're not good at doing podcasts. There's not much out there. We're not good at doing YouTube. We're not good at getting our word out there to say, hey, there is other things, and you might find this interesting as well. I think you're right, Mark, and I also <laughs> think that, I mean, people tell me, you're not on Instagram. How can you not be on Instagram? There are certain You're not on people, Instagram. Oh my God. <laughs> there are certain people that are successful at their business that hammer you with advertisements every day. You're getting come-ons, buy this, buy that. Some of these are really good dealers. Annex sends out something every day, print of the day. There's a art dealer from Florida. He'll, he sells fine paintings with uh, subject lines like, wow, uh, Rothko. And I'm thinking... I, there's like a dignity in the business that I never want to surrender. Yeah. If I have to hit someone over the head every day to buy a painting and with wow on the subject line, I will feel like cheapened. Yeah, and I think that's not the way I go. I know for me, I don't go about it that way. For me, Instagram and Facebook are a way to show who you are, what you are, and let the selling do itself. And... Um, if you, if you, I think if, <clears throat> for you, for instance, I wouldn't even be putting up art much. I would just be showing your photographs. They're fantastic. And then periodically show the other side of you. And that gives a granularity that you just don't get. Uh, you don't get exposure. Mark, you do a beautiful job and the work when I, and I, you know, I don't know, this isn't a congratulatory session, but I look at the things that you put on and I'm just amazed at the great quality of work. But it also, I think there's, going to be fewer and fewer people like yourselves that can win at this game i'm not on facebook i was on it hurt my head yeah. being on 24 <laughs> hours a day it is a commitment that's a, true it's a commitment it actually physically hurts my brain to be on all the time when the internet when people first started on the internet there's a gentleman in pasadena i won't say his name but he sell, sold tiffany lamps he was not the most social guy in the world and he loved selling online the way I always like to sell is have someone walk into my booth, fall in love with something, see the smile on their face, mm -hmm. sell it personally. I'm a warm person. I like to sell personally. And if I was churning and everything was an internet transaction, it would really feel like a job to me. Now, maybe my paradigm is not going to work any longer. I, I tell you, I'm a cautionary tale on what not to do at this point. Well, some of the things that you'll find out, so you, you, you throw out this, um, you know, you don't get to meet the person and talk to the person, but often on these online sales, if you do develop relationships, they buy from you online, uh, maybe never ever doing anything but clicking a button, but ultimately you'll end up talking to them, seeing them. If you have a store or in your case, you have a by appointment or you do shows, they'll show up to see you. I can't tell you how many people have come to see me in my gallery just because of Facebook or Instagram because they want to see who the person is behind it and they want to see the thing, whether they buy or not. Well, it's interesting. If you contrast this to my blog, which is 11 years old now, Google stops sending me the metrics after 15 million views. Yeah. So I have a... You I have a platform. I have a platform. Which you work hard on that too, is right? huge. That the millions, the thousands of people a day that read me but I made a commitment early on that I was not going to use that platform to sell. That's right. Well, you don't. I, mine are not. My platforms are really not to sell either. They're to educate uh, and to intrigue uh, and to give you a sense of what the gallery is and who we are. And that's why they come by to see it. Same with your blog. I mean, you're basically in the Internet age doing this. You're just avoiding the 
other platforms. You're using a blog, which you have photos and you have lots of information. You use video. I, 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 you know, I go to your blog every time you send it out. So it's there. I think we just somehow have to um, People know when they're forward. being sold. Oh, yeah, for and sure. And they don't want to be sold 24-7. I, ha- I heard a very interesting um, lecture by ha- uh, Howard Schultz, uh, the CEO of Starbucks. And, um, and this was kind of when I was getting re- really working on my Facebook site. And he said to, to the audience, and I asked him a little bit about it afterwards, but, you know, Starbucks wants to show you who they are and what you are. They're not trying to sell you cups or coffees. They want you to, and this is a huge brand, obviously, it's the, they're trying to give you the sense of what Starbucks stands for and who they are. And I thought, wow, if a big major corporation can do that that way, why shouldn't I do it the same way? So I rarely put things up for sale on my uh, social media. It's really, again, more about letting people know who you are. And I think you might find that, especially because you're visually oriented and you can do great photos. I challenge you to put up an Instagram account and see what comes of it. It does take effort, um, but I would follow it. I think one of the problems, so I mean, it, it's, it's getting harder and harder to survive in the business. And there comes a time when you, you find yourself eating your seed corn. Now, when things were going great, mm-hmm. I, my motto was, I'm going to buy the best material out there and I'm going to pay what I have to pay. And ultimately someone will walk by and pay just a little bit more. Today's age, you, if you buy something, you have to be so much more cautious because you may live with, they may throw it in your coffin. Well, I mean, things I think, and we reset as an economy in 208, 209. There's no doubt about it. It reset people's uh, expectation of what could be happen in the economy, your houses, art, uh, especially for the generation that was most effective, which was us, really. You know, we're getting closer to retirement, whatever. We see everything kind of go under the toilet, and that was a problem. I'm not so sure it's that same way with the youth. So, again, I think maybe we just need time. And the other area that I think is very interesting that's developing is the rest of the world. We have the rest of the world to sell to that we're, as dealers, we rarely tap into. And I think the more that we expose the Chinas, the you know, New Zealands, Japan, all these Germany, all these major uh, areas of what we have to offer as a society and arts, especially native arts, because it's the original American art, I think there's a, a market there we don't even know about. And I, quite frankly, I haven't tapped into it either. Some people have. Some people are like starting Terry. to, like Terry. Schumeyer, who has done very well with um, the Japanese uh, market. So, you know. There's certainly a huge, huge affinity for uh, the American West and China. If you go to Yellowstone or Jackson right now, you'll see China is everywhere in the West. The Chinese tourists, they are enraptured, as are the French, as are the Russians, as are the Germans. That's right. There's a huge, of course, the Germans have always been interested in Native American. Yeah, I interviewed, uh, which will be coming up, a couple that live in Germany, and that's what they do. They have a gallery that sells Native American art. They come over and buy it here, and then they sell it in, um, well, they sell it all over, but they have their store or their online store, and their presence is in Germany. And they were, you know, always interested in Western and, and West and Native American art. So I'm trying, I guess I'm going to be the cheerleader here today that it's not all gloom and doom, though there are obstacles, no doubt, that we have. I think part of those obstacles to overcome, I see it, is, is again, embracing the new platforms, which that's the only way we're going to get to the, the next generation that grows up with a cell phone in their hand at age two months. I'd also like to say that many of my problems may be self-inflicted. <laughs> and the sense, the reality is that for me, I get much more satisfaction creating art, writing my photography, than I do peddling art. Yeah, I understand uh, that. I had a friend recently, very recently, say, Robert, when the old Japanese uh, generals there was a time when they hung up their swords and, and trimmed the bonsai trees. You know? <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and maybe 
I'm approaching that wind down period that I just really, I, I think we've all been waiting for some sort of tailwind. It's a conservation of energy mode because you just, the, you, we know that we can't really get anywhere by push, push, pushing without a little help from the universe. So yeah. I'm waiting for a little help. Yeah, well, keep writing the blog, I'm going to tell you, and keep taking the photographs. And so where are you headed from here? What's your next, what's the next 10 years for Robert Summers? Uh, Any idea? I'm, I'm, I'm thinking month to month. Okay, Mark. well, that's the next month then. <laughs> I know you've got this show here at Santa Fe. We hope we have a, a couple good shows here at the Objects and the American Indian Show. I am showing a... Uh, John invited me to do a uh, presentation of my bird and photography. So I put a 40-minute uh, slideshow together on bird and wildlife photography. That's going to run in a loop in my booth. And, and if we miss that because of the airing time, but we'll try to see if we can get Robert to give us a few of those images that we'll put on the YouTube uh, part of this so you can see what we're talking Eventually, about. Eventually, I will put the whole uh, show on YouTube. And there's I've spent... 10 years shooting raptors out in the field. As yeah, you know. they're beautiful. No, the photos are just uh, fantastic. I, I really, really uh, enjoy that. So uh, I hope that you'll get an opportunity. I have a couple of my New Mexico photos that'll be there for sale. And, uh, you know, people say you should sell your photography. I don't know. I've been you, saying that for a long time. I don't know that I, you can make a living today selling your photography. But no, but you get that interaction. You get to meet sure, those people that sure. you crave and you like, and you're getting to talk about what you do. Right. I mean, the first thing you did when you walked into this podcast booth was to look at the cameras. <laughs> what kind of cameras are there? <laughs> There's clearly an interest there that needs to be itched, I think. Right. Yeah, and uh, I have the... Uh, I have some wonderful equipment I'm using right now, so it's I'm really, really enjoying And do you that. find you're spending more time doing that as far as being on websites and visiting areas that are involved with photographs, like maybe Instagram? I'm sorry? So do you, in your off time, because you, you like to read, you love to read, but you're, I'm sure you're investigating other photographers and their work, and how do you, where do you go about to look at those kind of things? Uh, I, the standard DP review, Petapixel, I'll look at the normal online things, but I don't really spend a lot of time looking at other people's work. You're more interested in getting out into the field and yeah. doing your own. Right. Yeah, I can see that. Um, I, I lost my brother last year. And, Sorry, I heard about that. I remember it was you. And I think in some ways I've become a little people averse. And so getting off and I, I go to the San Jacinto National Wildlife Area. And if I can get lost in the woods, it's very good for my soul. So yeah. I've been taking advantage of that. Every and you day. take your camera when you go? Yes, I do. Yeah, of course you do. <laughs> <laughs> so my, my, my goal for the next 10 years has been my goal that I've always had, which was pay my bills and take an occasional vacation. Yeah. My wife and I love Kauai. We love uh, Yellowstone. I need to get back to Jackson. And if, if I can do that, it's a success for me. Well, and you're also a foodie. I mean, it seems like yes. it to me by reading your blog. Now, what, how, just give me a little bit of that, because I, I do like to read that part of your blog when you talk about the different kinds of food, because you don't pull punches if you don't like it, too. Yeah, I, uh, I love good food. I used to hang out with a lot of foodies. We would have truffle nights at each other's uh, houses, <laughs> everyone doing a different gig. My wife and I seek out great, cheap ethnic. We love Shanghai Chinese style. I love uh, bao dumplings and great Vietnamese and great Thai and uh, great French. So yeah, I, I love, you look at my gut. This, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't get this. I, I cut it out of the photo. So you could, <laughs> so you look better. Trust right. me. I mean, uh, we, we, I love good food and, uh, I like writing about it and I, um, you know, but I also will, uh, like to go to dives too. Yeah, no, I know. And that's kind of the cool thing. I think when you write about that is you can, you know, these are places that are very accessible, but have great food. At least you've said they had, so we assume they do. Is there any great areas, restaurants you would recommend for San Diego or and Santa Fe? Cause you visit here enough that you like just so people will know. Let me think. Uh, I like that little Mexican place behind Steve Elmore's place. 
Oh yeah, uh, mucho gusto. Yeah, yeah. That's a sleeper that not it is too a sleeper. It's, it's a about. Mexican. It's Mexican style, mm-hmm. um, and it's been around. Used to be in a different part of Santa Fe forever. But yeah, I agree. I eat there all the time. I really miss Julian's and then Copa de Oro because mm-hmm. I'm a big duck fan. Mm-hmm. So and I don't think they've reinvented themselves again. But that that was a really nice way to go. And is there any great place in San Diego area or Fallbrook area that you want to plug? Uh, well, the best. I like Pamplemousse a lot by Del Mar. That's excellent food, but I try to go on restaurant week when I can afford the price fix menu. Have but, you ever considered writing, a, being a critic? I mean, you really do write. Yeah, I, many people have suggested it. And actually, when I go into restaurants, I've had a lot of free meals. People know me in San Diego. It's kind of scary, but I'll go in and they'll go, I'll hear someone whisper. So I've, yeah. I've worked the food angle to my advantage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I could see you doing that as another. Yeah. And so you go in, you do that, and then you get them art for their walls because generally these restaurants yeah. do not have very good art. I wish I could. Pamplemousse does. They have great art. My brother, who uh, I lost in Canada, was a lawyer who decided that he hated law and he opened up one of the greatest restaurants in Toronto. Oh, wow. Called uh, David's Bistro. So he had the same thread of loving food. Sure. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's an art form, just like anything else. It, it really is. And I'm, my wife is a phenomenal cook. So oh. uh, if I love great Italian. And uh, I uh, could probably survive on it any day. You know, there's a restaurant in Del Mar that is uh, actually a small Chicago chain named Devante Enoteca, which is rustic Italian with great focaccia. That's got to be one of my favorites. Well, so we learned a lot about Robert Summers today. And if you're in, De- if you're in the uh, San Diego Fallbrook area, really, give him a call. Also, he goes to all these different shows that are in the L.A., uh, San Diego area, and also Santa Fe show every year. Did I tell you my motto, Mark? No, but I'd love to hear it. Survival is the new victory. <laughs> wow, we're going to end, I guess, on that happy note. Um, <laughs> I don't have a motto, but I'm going to come up with one. <laughs> well, I hope that it all it works out beautifully for all the dealers. So people told me that the money was starting to break loose in Albuquerque. People are much more optimistic than me. I'm a poopy old guy. See, that is the classic dealer gig right there. Folks, if you want to take anything away from this entire podcast... We go through everything, and then the last thing that's said is, I hear the money's kind of breaking loose in that last show. It's looking pretty good. I think there's going to be some action. This is like when you go fishing. There's got to be a pony around here somewhere. Yeah, that's it. I mean, you go fishing, and the I think they're biting. I know this is going to be good. And uh, Robert's here because of a show, and uh, the show hasn't opened yet. After the show, it'd be interesting to have the same conversation and see if that optimism is there. I hope it is. I know that uh, he's a wonderful guy, and I'm really glad you took a little time and come Thank talk you, to Mark. me today. Thanks so much. Now, Robert Summers, Art Dealer Diaries. Check out his blog. You won't regret it. Thank you. <laughs>